Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Well, hello, world. What is this world right now? It's fucking crazy how much can change in a week. Um, I feel more grateful than ever to have this platform. Um, not to say it hasn't been a bit difficult to sort of gather the energy to do something productive. I think this level of anxiety and fear and unknown definitely puts me into a bit of a frozen state, which I think is self-protective to some extent. Um, I'm in a certain position and time in my life where I don't necessarily have a quote-unquote home to just hunker down in. Um, I've been taking care of a friend in Northern California for a couple of months after coming back um, unexpectedly from Thailand and looks like I'm going to be headed to Colorado uh, this weekend uh, where I have some land um, which feels the most like home at the moment. But because of that, I think the, you know, just the situation in the world coupled with the like very many unknowns of my own life and location and what's the best plan of action and when and how and why. And it's like, it's overwhelming. Um, it's, it's really impossible to make a plan when you don't really know what you're making a plan around. It's like, how do I make this decision when I don't even have all the information. Um, you sort of can't make a decision. You just sort of have to trust your gut. I said to a friend this morning, like, if we can't trust our intuition right now, we're so fucked. You know, I think there's a lot of noise. Um, and I know I talk about the importance of intuition and just getting sort of quiet and calm and listening. Um, and I think that's especially vital right now in deciding what's best for each and every one of us. Uh, I think that's going to look very different, whether that's to, you know, stay put, hang out at a friend's house indefinitely, sort of where to isolate and quarantine oneself and what to do while you're in that space. I think there's a lot of stuff going around about like, this is the time to get shit done and like produce and make content and like get that project finished. Uh, which may be what some people need, but I think other people are just like, wow, I am, I'm normally so busy and so overworked and producing so much that this is the first time I have to 
experience life without that. Uh, I think all of our different reactions are totally valid. So I think I feel the most sort of like proud and inspired by those right now who are taking individual agency to really make a decision that's best for them, despite whatever sacrifices that they're going to have to make. I think every decision right now includes some amount of sacrifice. I don't know anybody whose plans haven't been just totally uprooted, whose lives haven't been totally uprooted. I know many people who've already been laid off, many people who um, freelance, who no longer have any work, people who are having to make um, drastic and quick decisions about selling their shit and getting rid of their apartments and finding a way to live more cheaply. I've also struggled in this time in knowing, you know, where to find balance between being proactive and responsible and preparing uh, and like, where's the line between that and just like outright paranoia and even so far as some sort of addiction to drama, I think, um, you know, I was reflecting back, I think I've always been the type of person that during a crisis like this, I remember it first happening during 9-11, and I was 12, 12, 13. Um, and I lived in New York at the time, so it, was, it happened very close. The effects of it were um, quite potent. And I remember having this sort of guilty feeling of like, I don't want anyone else to get hurt, but I kind of want this to keep going or continue because I, I can't say that I formed this thought at the time. Mostly I just felt guilty. And then recently... Um, I was sort of reflecting back on that and in other times in my life when I felt similarly. And I think what I realized was like, I'm addicted and feel pulled toward what happens uh, collectively and individually when there is a crisis. I felt that a few years ago when, um, or a couple years ago, or not even a year ago, when I was evacuated from my house in Topanga for wildfires for 10 days. Um, I felt it a couple years ago over the summer, the summer of the eclipse, when there were so many wildfires everywhere, the, the energy of the air changes, um, figuratively and literally. And I think that's always what I've been addicted to. And so this, I think, feels like and is sort of like the biggest crisis I will probably have lived through in my life, global crisis, not individual crisis. And coupled with, I think, a lot of just sort of like premonition and gut feelings that this type of situation is maybe not inevitable but expected. I can't say I'm totally surprised, um, but I do sort of find myself falling more into the camp of preparedness and making plans for the long term. Um I've read so much that just say like the peak of this crisis is not going to come till late spring. I was reading the um, address that the Dutch president or prime minister put out to the country a couple nights ago. And of course, the Netherlands being the Netherlands is taking a different approach than most countries. Um, and we can, you know, assign a value judgment to these decisions or not. But what I what he said, which I thought was really interesting was that he said, like, the Netherlands is not going to take the approach that most other countries are taking, 
One, um, because he wants to build immunity among healthy people. So the more healthy people that get this and build immunity, the less it will be transmitted. Don't kill the messenger. If that's scientifically inaccurate, fine. Um, the second thing he said is that they're not going to quarantine and shut things down to the extent that other countries are because it would destroy the economy. Um, unsurprisingly, I think it's done that in every country that's initiated these types of shutdowns. Um, and he said the reason it would destroy the economy so intensely is because in order for a quarantine like this to work, it would have to last at least a year. So things would have to be shut down and people would have to stay inside and basically not resume normal activities for up to a year in order for something like that to be actually effective at stopping the spread of the virus. Which I'm inclined to sort of believe. I'm, I think what we're doing right now makes sense. Uh, given the circumstances, given the, re given the resources we have available, given the size and number of people in our country, the number of health unhealthy people in our country. But all that to say, I just don't think that this is going to stop anytime soon. And I feel like I just want to get to a place that feels safe, that I'm willing to sort of stay for a while. You know, who knows? Maybe they'll shut down cities or roads in interstate roads. I have no idea what that's going to look like, but I feel super, super pulled to get to a place that just energetically and spiritually, personally feels safe to me. Uh, I know a lot of people who are struggling right now with, you know, the whole concept of like, do we put our oxygen masks on first before helping someone else? And I have to say, I do think this is time a time for that. I think, you know, people are dealing with parents and their needs and siblings and family members, and there's a lot of information and advice being shouted at us. And I think now more than ever is the time when we really need to just turn inward and do what's best for us. That's not, uh, that's not to say that that decision is necessarily going to be easy. It might actually be quite difficult, but I think that's the best thing to do. I, uh, I've probably mentioned this book several times on the podcast. The second episode I ever recorded was during the fires that I just mentioned in Kala, uh, in Topanga, uh, in Malibu, a little over a year ago. I was reading uh, a book called The Great Bay a couple years prior. It's by someone named Dale Pendle, an ethnobotanist, really smart dude. And he wrote this sci-fi book uh, in, um, 2010, he's no longer alive. Actually, he wrote this book in 2010 and it tells the story of basically global collapse and it takes place starting in 2020. And the whole book is told through first person narratives and it tracks the, you know, quote unquote collapse and transformation of civilization from 2020, I think into 2,500 years into the future. And when I was reading it, in 2017, there were all these wildfires, Trump had just gotten elected, and I was having such a hard time like distinguishing fact from reality. And um, then when the fires happened in Topanga recently, and I was evacuated, I read, I did a whole episode, it was episode two of the podcast. Um, I think it was called Live from the Apocalypse, a Los Angeles notebook. Uh, and I read a, a section of that book, which during that time seemed especially potent as well. Um, and that was the time, those nine days when I was evacuated from my house, again, call me paranoid or conspiracy theorist or whatever, but the only thing I could think of during that period of time is 
whatever is going on right now is like not the end. I'm going to be fine. This is going to end. I'm going to be able to go back to my home. But this is preparing me for something. This is the energy of something I feel like that might be coming in the future. It's a preview. It's a it's a hint. It's a sign. It's a synchronicity. I don't know. But I felt that so intensely. And so I referred back to this book that I'd read and read uh, sections of it on the podcast. And fascinatingly, you know, this book that was written in 2010, long before we ever knew about Trump or anything that was actually going to happen 10 years later, uh, the book tells, I highly recommend it if you need some reading. <laughs> I don't know, maybe actually I don't, maybe it's just going to stress you out more and make you paranoid. Um, uh, hopefully the, the tale he tells is a lot more extreme than what we'll experience, but, um, it starts with, uh, the fact that there's no election in 2020. There's a, um, unstable and sort of crazy president who is, I forget, either engaging in or threatening nuclear warfare. There's a biological warfare is released, um, in response as a protest, but it gets out. There's an influenza strain that comes out of China. There's a smallpox strain that comes out of somewhere and some other like, rogue um, pandemic. So there's all these different pandemics going around and like three-fourths of the world's population dies in a matter of months. Infrastructure collapses. There's no government. And it's all told like through memory and through archived writing and through people who are going on journeys after the collapse. And it basically tracks the progress of quote-unquote civilization, or I guess in this case, a lack thereof, over the course of all these years. And basically, they, everyone returns to hunter-gatherer lifestyles, and there's different groups depending on geographic location. It tells this very interesting story of a group of people sort of caravanning from California to Colorado, because apparently in Boulder, they're trying to restart the government. Um, and they tell of all these sort of groups of people and tribes that they meet, you know, quote-unquote tribes, groups, um, that they meet along the way. There's a group in Laramie, Wyoming, that's like stoning women. So you sort of see how, depending on the culture and belief system and geography of the place, uh, defines and predicts the type of, um, you know, customs or belief systems that crop up in these different areas. Uh, and it was so weird because when I was on this trip in 2017, I was literally driving up the coast of California um, into Wyoming through Laramie and then down into Boulder. And I'm like reading of this journey of these people post, you know, civilization collapse, taking the same route. And here I am in my car, like losing my mind. It was just so fucking surreal. Um, but, you know, now uh, this all seems kind of realistic. I would not be surprised if the election doesn't happen or gets postponed. Um, I would not be surprised if infrastructure crumbles because we're not fucking using it if the economy crumbles because we're not we're not engaging in it um and that's what i said at the time when i recorded this episode last year it was like all i could think about was our reliance upon infrastructure that's completely out of our control and resources that are completely out of our control uh, you know those fires were started in large part because of faulty telephone poles you know um, and we're bailing out the electric companies that were at fault for causing the fire in the first place. I mean, the whole thing was just so fucking maddening and crazy. And it made me think really hard. It's when I, that was the trip when I, you know, first in 2017, when I first started thinking about 
I need to buy land somewhere. I need to find a place where if all goes to shit, like I have a supportive community and I have the wherewithal and people around me who have the wherewithal to fucking support each other and grow food if need be and hunt if need be and protect each other if need be and just fucking live outside of the confines of all of these fucking structures. I really hope that everyone recognizes the fragility in this stuff. I've, I think probably this audience feels similarly, but I've, I'm so, I've been so frustrated my whole life, but especially in the past few years about just like the complete utter lack of awareness and blindness of the bulk of the population to like, we're fucked if we don't have a a second option. We're fucked if we don't know how to protect ourselves. We're fucked if we don't know how to fucking forage. Like, this is crazy. And sure, you know, maybe things will quote unquote go back to normal. Um, but even if they do, I think they're going to look a lot different, first of all. So whatever normal is, it's going to be a new normal. And I was skeptical. I was skeptical that an event like this could actually shift anything in any sort of substantial way, whether that be like, oh, yeah, now people are going to realize we need universal health care. Oh, yeah, now people are going to adopt a new form of living and not rely so heavily on external resources. Um, I was definitely skeptical at first, but now that I sort of see this as having the potential to go on a lot longer than we might think it will... um, I don't see how it couldn't affect things substantially. You know, I have all these friends who are potentially getting rid of their apartments and selling their shit and going to like live in a van or cohabitate together and no one's working and people are kind of having fun and doing what they want to do. I know that's not the case for everyone. I know a lot of people are really struggling and freaked out. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. But I think if we start to, because we have to live in really different ways, I hope and I expect that at some point, if there's the option to go back, that we're going to be like, "Mm, no thanks. (laughs) You know, you can't unsee what you've seen. You can't not go to your job for however many months and not realize what it feels like to not have to do that. I have a lot more to say. I will have a lot more to say, I'm sure, in the coming weeks of this podcast. Um, Please, if you have the capability to support um, people like podcasters, please support them in this way, financially, morally. Uh, This is going to become, I think, a vital connective tissue to keep people feeling sane and seen and um, feel less isolated. Um, this episode is with my friend Kestrel. It is a follow-up to last week's episode with Henna and Madeline. Um, Kestrel introduced me to Henna and Madeline. She is a psychotherapist and um, involved in the climbing community. Her first um, love, as she calls him, Johnny Cop, was killed uh, in an avalanche. Um, this was after she was actually with him, but still obviously his death affected her and everyone that knew him, um, in an obviously intense and, uh, profound way. And she has just been, you know, sort of involved in different ways in the community for a long time and, um, knew I, uh, was very interested in grief and sort of getting the message out about 
embracing grief and how to process grief and even defining grief. Um, and, uh, so she connected me with, uh, the climbing grief fund and Hannah and Madeline, which was last week's episode. If you haven't listened to last week, last week's episode, I highly recommend doing that. Um, it is definitely a good intro to this week's episode, although maybe not imperative. Um, Kestrel and I had, have a sort of interesting conversation, uh, that sort of jumps back and forth between climbing and therapy. Uh, I would say physical risk and emotional risk, physical fear and emotional fear, um, I didn't expect to have the conversation in that way. It's just sort of how it worked out. Kestrel was originally going to be on the podcast with Henna and Madeline, but I thought it might be nice since I'm very sort of into uh, discussing and unpacking the therapeutic process. And Kestrel um, is someone I trust and respect quite a bit that it might be interesting to sort of broaden the conversation and give her a little more time and space to discuss more than just her life in climbing. Um, the fund is providing grants to those in the community who need support. They can opt to get therapy. They can opt to go on some sort of vision quest. Um, and so Kestrel is now receiving clients through the climbing community um, for therapy to help them um, process the great deal of grief and loss that they've experienced. Um, I think that's all I'm going to say for today. Not going to push anything too hard. I think I said what felt like it was at the tip of my tongue and needed to come out, and I will let you listen to this episode. This podcast has definitely been very intense recently. Um, I think it was a bit intense before this whole crisis really came to pass, but my life has been a bit intense recently, and I think the podcast reflects that, which makes sense. And, you know, hopefully we don't see intense or sad or painful in a vacuum. We don't see it as bringing us down or depressing, but we actually can find the joy and the light and the meaning within that intensity and that pain and that sadness. Um, Kestrel and I definitely expand on that concept quite a bit, talk a lot about duality and that which uh, makes a whole, um, you know, uh, love, loss, love, grief, pain, happiness, etc. Um, these things are dualities, but it's yin and yang, right? They uh, are within each other and both make up a whole. And things are intense right now, undoubtedly. I think they will get more intense. And um, we'll all be here together in some form or another. I am going to play you into this episode with a song. Um, this is a song by the Paper Stars. They had uh, an album called Border Country, which was actually written um, in honor of Johnny Cop, Kestrel's, um, I guess I'll say boyfriend. I hate the word boyfriend. Um, Kestrel's first love, which I like quite a bit more. Um, this album was written um, in honor of him and the song that I'm going to play, also called Border Country. Um, what used uh, lines of a poem that uh, Johnny wrote in China days before he died. Uh, the poem was found in his journal at base camp, um, and knowing that he died several days later in an avalanche, hearing especially the beginning few lines of this song that was that came from his poem um, is pretty intense and shocking uh, premonition. I guess that kind of takes us full circle. I, I think I have an episode that'll come out maybe next week um, where we talked a lot about, you know, 
intuition and premonition and um, dreams and how to integrate that information and sort of take action in a way, but also not assign a ton of meaning to those feelings we have. You know, we don't want to take it too far. We don't want to think like, oh, okay, well, I had one dream that something in it came true. And so therefore all my dreams are true and I'm going to drastically change my life. Or like I had a dream I was a god, so I must be a god. You know, these things are obviously nuanced and we want to be careful. Um, But we can't deny that at certain times and in certain people, um, we know something's coming. I definitely will go to my grave feeling like I felt like this was coming and um, this being the crisis that we're in right now. And I know a lot of people have felt similarly. And um, hopefully we don't feel any shame or guilt around that fear or that knowing. Um, It's frustrating when we don't know what to do with it, but uh, I think it is important to acknowledge it nonetheless. Um, There was another climber, uh, Nolan unfortunately don't know his name off the top of my head, who just died in a tragic accident just a few days ago. I I posted about it on Instagram. His um, girlfriend uh, has been sharing quite a bit about his death. And um, he died unexpectedly. He was, uh, his girlfriend's name, by the way, is Savannah uh, Cummins. Um, The writing that she's doing on his death is beautiful. And um, her handle is sav.cummins. And she, um, anyway, Nolan died. He, as far as we can tell, um, was being extremely safe, knew what he was doing as a very experienced climber and was just resting on a ledge that um, happened to collapse. And when the ledge collapsed, the rock cut his rope, which doesn't happen. It was a freak accident. So even though he was taking all necessary precautions, um, it didn't matter in this case. And, uh, anyway, she just put up a post about how he would sometimes wake her up because he had dreams about his death and that in the dreams he fell in a climbing accident, but climbing was what he loved and that was his life. And it was just a dream and it was scary, but what are we going to do about it? You know? I don't think we really can do much of anything. I think it's, and I don't want us to, you know, if we have a dream or we have a premonition or we have a feeling and the thing happens, you know, because we didn't take action at the time, that's not our fault. I think the lesson we should take from that is just to acknowledge and feel very thankful that we are a part of something potentially a lot greater than us. And we are, you know, uh, connected to lots of different you know, levels of energy that we may not and maybe even shouldn't be able to understand. Um, But I hope we can all sort of hold on to that connectivity right now between all of us. I think probably we've all seen the extent to which, you know, we're all just humans. And when shit like this goes down, a lot of the bullshit melts away. And I think we can start to touch base more intimately with our intuition and, you know, the true meaning of whatever the fuck we are here on this planet to do. So I'm going to play you into the episode with uh, Border Country uh, by the Paper Stars. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Kestrel. Um, If you'd like to support the podcast, um, please share it with your friends. 
leave a subscribe on iTunes, leave a review. It helps a lot and it's free. I don't really want to ask anyone to spend any money right now. So, um, let's just all support each other. Uh, subscribing on iTunes, leaving some stars and a review helps tremendously in helping this podcast reach more people. Um, I do think that, you know, this is the time for a podcast podcast like this to really expand and reach more people and get us to think, you know, more creatively and critically about all of these issues. So, um, that's, I would say just, uh, or send me a note. That's fucking supportive too. Send each other a note, <laughs> leave each other a note in the review instead. Um, I, uh, definitely have some more time and space in my life and I'm going to start thinking creatively about different ways that we can all sort of support each other. And, um, I'll let you know on all of that when I know. Love you all. Please enjoy this episode and I will catch you on the other side. Well, here he comes to take me down Take me down with the thundering sound And here she comes, arms spread wide Calling me back from border country Well, inch by inch, step by step Shadows running in both directions Bringing us face to face Tighten my boots, make a run Turn to see that my thoughts are tied Standing still in the blazing sun Nowhere to hide Here in border country Here it comes to take me down Take me down with the thundering sound Here she comes, arms spread wide Calling me back from border country Well, inch by inch, step by step Shadows are running in both directions Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Here in border country
border country So I am here with my dear friend, Kestrel. Um, and I have to say, I'm, I, I don't think I like planned to have you on the podcast initially, but I'm like really grateful and excited that you are. And as I was saying before we started recording, um, this conversation will definitely sort of like pick up where the last one with Hannah and Madeline uh, stopped in regard to um, climbing and grief. Um, but you are also, um, a therapist and I am also very interested in that space and that process. Um, and more specifically you in that space and your process. Um, and I don't think I sort of suspected that those two subject matters would be connected, especially on my podcast. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing where that would go, but, uh, even in sort of the notes I shared with you this morning of what I was thinking, I it sort of start it's starting to make sense. I feel like we're kind of coming together <laughs> in regard to why this conversation is happening. Um, so I guess briefly, I'll just say like, you know, the context in which we met, um, we met through astrology and um, yeah, I think you were sort of part of this group of women I feel like it was the first group of women that I was like, oh, okay, now is the point in my life where I get to be surrounded by friends who like I'm consciously intentionally choosing and who think in similar ways to me. Um, and I would say out of that process, a lot of positive things came, but definitely that group of women, including you. Um, and yeah, because I definitely was in the world of astrology and gave readings, the intersection between just like regular psychotherapy and astrology and mythology and archetypes that resonated with me the most. It's probably the, the intersection in which I'm the most curious. So um, I had a couple of episodes, which for those listening, um, I guess the ones that are most relevant were probably with Mark Jones and Jason Hawley, where we talked quite a bit about um, the intersection of therapy and astrology. And uh, definitely, if you haven't listened to those, they'd be relevant to this discussion, I believe. Um, but here we are again. So um, I guess let's, I would love to get started hearing from you about where your interest in becoming a therapist began. Um, and you are the one that connected me to Madeline and Hannah. You are obviously have been very involved in the climbing community as well. And I'm curious if your involvement in those two worlds started out as combined. Like, do you see them uh, sort of like energetically operating, operating in any sort of similar vein, either at the start or now? <laughs> or like, where do you see the intersection of those two? So I guess the entrance for you into those two worlds and like where you see them sort of working together. 
Yeah, well, hi. It's like, I'm so excited. We're finally doing this. Yeah. And yeah, I never anticipated to have this sort of conversation on the podcast. So the intersection, I feel like there's so many entry points because I have been a therapist, a practicing therapist for over 14 years now, but I feel like it's been such a like instrumental part or a primary part of my essence ever since childhood because I just, I've always been a really sensitive person and um, was always really attuned to others. And even as a child, one of my main primary roles was to really self-soothe my sister. <laughs> you know, I was kind of the one that was asked when she was having a hard time to be with her and just let her be in whatever space she needed to. And I didn't feel like it was my job. It was just something that naturally came to me. And then climbing also came online very young for me. I started climbing, I think it was about eighth grade. So it's just really hard to distinguish when that began um, because they were both happening simultaneously for me. It was just so much, much a part of my person. And I just remember people commenting in the climbing community. I remember when I was actually finally deciding to go to grad school for psychology, um, one of my climbing peers just offered um, to write me a letter of recommendation. And one of the things he noticed is just, you're the type of that person that's always stopping to be there with others and be present with others. And you're curious and you're asking questions. And so it's always just been like a huge part of who I am, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And what? yeah, no, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. Oh no, it's fine. But I think what I really realized and this realization came to me um, in November when I finally did the, um, the podcast or excuse me, the interview for the Climbing Grief Fund was I've been in preparation for this my entire life. Yeah, it's really hard for me to pinpoint it. I was just going to say like, in terms of your um, initial like intuitive connection to like, let's say holding space and counseling, what was, was there a similar sort of interest in or motivation um, or curiosity around climbing? Because I think that's one piece that like, I think I mentioned this in the last episode that there was part of me that like, didn't really get it. Like I didn't, the physical sort of risk aspect of it, like to me felt more, anxiety producing than like what mm -hmm. I think a lot of people experience it as or you know explain it to be which is like sort of calm and flowy um so I'm curious for you like where where did that interest begin um and did it sort of was it just did it just happen or was there something that was like oh wow this is like really cool and interesting and either I like these people or I like this feeling or anything mm -hmm. like that yeah I mean I think it was so much a part of my world because my parents were both climbers. Oh, okay. So it was just natural to be in nature and climbing. So I do remember like my first real climb was in eighth grade. My father took me up the third flat iron, which is here in Boulder, Colorado. And I just remember feeling this 
tremendous sense of exhilaration and fear at the same time and not knowing if I could make it through it, but Mm -hmm. then actually sticking with the process and feeling this sense of accomplishment and getting to the top and being like, wow, I'm really capable of more than I thought. And I think that's kind of the metaphor with rock climbing is it's not just about climbing the mountain. It's the experience that you're having in the process. And I think for me, it's been a combination of like what you were saying, that flowy state. I'm really so in the present moment. I feel connected um, with Mother Earth. I feel like I'm connected to this oneness greater than myself. But I'm also discovering along the way that I'm mentally and physically capable of doing more than I even thought possible. And then the other side of that, I think, is really discovering that can apply to the day to day and facing other dragons or whatever in our life that are really challenging that I just have that sense that even though I don't think I'm capable sometimes in the the beginning moment, um, that often if I persist, I do things that just blow my mind. I mean, there's usually a lot of trepidation. Like I am not a really bold climber. I'm definitely a climber who takes really calculated risks and I want to be in control and I want to make sure all my system's working and I'm not going out there doing the big mountains anymore because I've seen the loss in the climbing community and I have a lot of fear. Like I just don't have the desire to put myself in that position anymore, but I do like starting a project that's something climbers talk about a new climb that's above my limit and discovering like how am I going to make this possible not only on a physical level but a mental level because so much of it is uh, realizing that it's the barrier to get over the mental sometimes that often I'm more physically capable of doing things interesting yeah for sure yeah Yeah, I think I I until I mean, I did that podcast with Henna and Madeline, but also with um, Akshay, uh, who wrote a book about fear. And he talked mm-hmm. a lot about putting himself in like both, well, actually maybe mostly physically either dangerous or challenging environments. And um, it was sort of the first time that I was sort of looking at like, oh, it's interesting because I'm not putting myself in those types of situations, but I feel very like hungry for like emotionally and I don't want to say dangerous but like emotionally vulnerable situations and where I Mm -hmm. know there is risk like I you know I don't I don't I don't sort of sit on the side and think like well maybe that could hurt me so I'm not gonna go there I'm sort of like yeah let's do this um and what you said just now was like so great like I'm capable of more than I thought was possible, which Mm -hmm. is such a lovely metaphor, I think, to emotional growth um, as well, which I'm sure, I mean, now it's interesting because I feel like maybe more of your clients or more of your sort of like counseling world will be filled up with climbers because of the grants for the fund. Um, But it is interesting, like how you're sort of seeing both of those expressions of of growth that they're they can't I don't think they can be sort of taken apart if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um 
Well, and I think I'm similar to you of wanting to go more towards the discomfort, you know, as you were talking about that. I mean, one way to do that is um, facilitating that through climbing. But again, for me, it's very calculated. But even like coming onto your podcast or doing the interview for the Climbing Grief Fund, you know, facing that fear and going through that, it becomes a real alchemical process. I come out the other side, change myself and more confident. And also I think extending it to other people um, that avoiding it doesn't help. And I think that really comes up in the counseling room too. You know, a lot of my clients have just baseline anxiety and I'm not referring solely to, to, to the climbers. But if we don't face that, our life somehow becomes smaller. You know, the, the more we don't face the things that we perceive as scary, um, we're kind of left on the sidelines. That makes sense. Yeah. Totally. I'd love for you to talk a little bit and maybe we can like dip into the archetypal space in this sense. Um, you know, that, that link between struggle or risk and growth. Um, and I do feel like it's something um, that I have. I think I mm-hmm. sort of learned it from my father in many ways, not consciously, but sort of seeing him take pretty like intense, I mean, risk is a strange word, but he sort of unapologetically decided like, I'm not going to pass shame onto my children and I cannot live a life that is not authentic. And I've fucked up. Like I started doing that and I can't do it anymore. And I'm going to like, just tear out of this like inauthentic covering and figure this out. But I have no idea if it'll work. I have no idea if I'm going to like lose my job or my reputation or my children or, um, and I'm referring to basically like coming out as gay after being married and having kids in the early nineties. Um, so like, Obviously, I know you have an astrological understanding and an archetypal understanding, and I think it's something that process is something I see. I mean, obviously, people come to us for specific reasons, I think, you know, through friendships or romantic relationships or clients. Um, So I do think I get a lot of people that come to me that are like struggling with that or trying to figure out like, how do you do this and how can I kind of a thing. Um, so I'm curious, like how you would sort of describe that process. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a super broad question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I'm, I'm more willing to ride that edge than before. I think it's kind of, I've been compartmentalizing it as one step as at a time, because, I guess I think it was Margaret Cho. She's a comedian. And this was something Madeline sent to me when I asked her for some words of wisdom before I did the interview for the Climbing Grief Fund. And she was just saying that um, you, the power of visibility can never be underestimated. And so I think each time I step into a place where I think I'm going to be rejected or abandoned or left behind, the end result is actually more authenticity for me and more connection for me. And then it extends into empowerment for others of like, wow, she's willing to show up in this way. 
maybe I'm willing to take a little bit step closer and share my vulnerability and be brave with it here as mm. well. Um, and I've always been up for a really great challenge. I mean, I think it's something I've always through that experience of putting myself in positions that are uncomfortable, again, get the greatest gifts and discovery about myself. And, but how I do that on a day to day, I mean, it's terrifying. I really have to manage that fine line between anxiety and excitement. And I think it's a choice of me knowing that my nervous system is designed and that I'm in a way that I'm capable of handling whatever confronts me. And a lot of times it's the anticipatory anxiety that keeps us frozen because I think a lot of us have been in situations where we're confronted with an accident or something terrifying and we actually really rise to the occasion. It's it's built into our human nature. And I think this was something that Madeline and and we're speaking about on the previous podcast, mm, you know, yeah. that we can trust that we're, we're designed to do this. Yeah. And do you see that like in the climbing community, do you feel like there's like a seeking in some way, like whether, I mean, we've talked about like Mars and the hero's journey and stuff, but do you see, like, I started to think about this morning, like, is there something like a hunger, like I was just talking about for sort of like realness or growth um, that's sort of being expressed in that way through climbing um, and like what that hunger or desire is, like what is being craved or, or maybe that's different for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it is different for everybody, but I know that it's really enlivened me. I mean, it gives me a sense of being so whole, so alive when I'm engaging in that way. Um, I mean, I think, though, it it doesn't have to be on the cutting edge for me. I don't have to be doing the most dangerous thing to get the same result. But I think it's also the people too. I mean, being with like-minded people and experiencing joy. And I think a part for me too is aside from the flow states, really being in my body. I love the way climbing feels in my body. I love connecting to the rock. I love the precision and the detail and, you know, finding a pathway through something. Um, is really exhilarating for me. And again, it translates into problem solving in my day to day mm. as well. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting because I, I guess I'm questioning too, what the motivators are for the people around me, because I'm more on the fringes of the climbing community. I mean, I'm very much a part of the community and have been for over 20 years, but on the other hand, I'm not in the main mix of it all. I'm kind of watching more from the outside and I am curious what's motivating people, you know, what, you know, because it, there's so much more media coverage. There's so many more professional photographers. There's so much more video taking place. And sometimes I just want to get back to the roots of being with a buddy out in nature. Right. You know? Yeah. So, and you're, I mean, it, I think it sounds like one of your, you know, big life experience was having your first love die. Um, you weren't with him at the time, but it was, it sounds, you know, 
wasn't that long after and that doesn't really go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, like what shift, or I guess two questions, like, do you see that hunger seeking, like, what was it for him? Do you know? Um, and how did that experience affect you when, like, was that sort of your first, like, oh my gosh, wow, this is really real. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Was that sort of the first uh, thing that happened in that respect and how that changed you both in terms of your perspective about climbing, but also just as a human? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Johnny's death was not the first intense experience that I'd had with death in the mountains, but I think it was the most intimate and close to my heart. Um, You know, it's interesting because archetypally, Johnny was a very you know, martial person. I think he was very driven by the sense of adventure. His life was so directed to being in the mountains. Um, I mean, not to confuse your audience, but I mean, his Mars was so out of bounds and he, you know, he didn't have a lot of fear. I mean, I think that was what was hard though towards the end is because there was video coverage of the mountain that he was trying to do that he died. And the first time that I'd really seen that fear inside of him outside of, I guess I was in a few positions with him where I was extremely run out and in a position, if I didn't, you know, make a calculated move, there was the possibility of me taking a big fall and either you know, dying or getting injured. And I think that was terrifying for him. But I think when he was in that position, that wasn't something that would enter his mind. Um, And then what was the other piece of the question? I guess, yeah, like what, what was the desire for him? But then also like, how did that experience sort of change you as a person? Um, yeah, it sounds like you had other intimate experiences around death and the community prior to that, but, uh, yeah, I think I was already changing. I mean, because, um, I used to be a professional guide for Exum mountain guides up in Jackson, Wyoming, and I lost my dear friend, Han Sari. And after that happened, because we were always on the mountain together, I was starting to have a lot of existential anxiety of like, this is possible. This could happen to me. What is going on? And that's when I think the first time that I really sought out a therapist, I'd done a little therapy as a child, but like the first time that I'd really intentionally gone to see a therapist because I couldn't manage everything that was coming up. And I think that was the first glimpse for me of like, this person is really helping me put this into context and figure out what's going on here. Perhaps this is something that I can do for other people. And Mm -hmm. he actually really encouraged me to go towards it. Um, And I think that's where it all started, starts to come together is it was happening simultaneously. Not only was I experiencing the loss on one hand, but I was also seeking support and therapy was the way in which I got it. And then, of course, spending a lot of time in nature. And I think that's what's so beautiful about this climbing grief fund is they're giving grants. And one of the possibilities, of course, is to go to a therapist, but you could also 
go on a vision quest or do something else therapeutic that you feel will serve you because that's the the extended part of the conversation I don't think there's one way to do the healing work and you know if you see a lot of limitations um, being in the counseling room too and that's part of the reason what brought me to the astrology and is also bringing me to question you know how can I best serve people you know is talk therapy the best I mean I think it's extremely helpful I think it can definitely make a cohesive narrative but all these other somatic experiences too are you know reaching places where language can't get to great yeah, segue went on a tangent there. yeah no it was perfect <laughs> I would love to like let's go into that I would love to hear your thoughts on um when you said like there's not just one way like there's not just one way and I think and that doesn't mean you have to pick one either, right? I think I've definitely the benefit of my own sort of, yeah, vision quests coupled with therapy, coupled with community, um, coupled with, I think, and this is what I'd love for you to speak to as well, my own counseling of others, you know, that the undeniable mirroring and reflection that occurs where, I was sort of stunned by that. I think when I was, I have always been in a position of offering support to others. And I think probably on some level, I recognized the extent to which whatever they were saying or the conversation we were having was teaching me something about myself. But I don't think it was quite until I started to give readings that that became like undeniably clear Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the point where it kind of like started to make me feel uncomfortable um, because I recognized how much I had to pay attention to it. Um, in order to like best mm-hmm. serve that person. So to back up, I guess, um, what do you feel are the limits of um, talk therapy and um, how did that play into your interest in like exploring astrology as another for another medium? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like I said, I do think the the talk therapy really does help us connect our ups and downstairs ring and makes that kind of cohesive narrative. There's something so powerful about being witnessed by another and being able to express other that actually helps us weave together and find meaning in our experience. But I was also finding it to some extent a little dull. And what I found with the astrology, um, you know, bringing in this mythological landscape and story and archetype really gave a creative way for people to plug in. Um, I, I was finding myself if I could be like, cause in the counseling console, initially I wasn't practicing a lot of the astrology. I was bringing in some of the concepts, but now that I feel like I have more um, permission to weave it in as appropriate. And I really loved your guest, Jason Holly, how he sometimes thinks about the, the natal chart as the the wise old sage or crone in the corner who like every once in a while pipes in and is like, hey, did you think of it in this way? But when I bring story online, what I discover is people can typically plug in specifically to that story and resonate with it. And they can identify where they are in that process. And I think when we can resonate or identify where we are in a process It then lends itself to a direction of where do I go from here next? And um, I just find people lighting up in a way that doesn't necessarily happen just in the talk therapy. Yeah. 
And what do you find? I, you know, I remember having this funny moment with my therapist who was like fantastic. And I don't know, I'd been in a lot of therapy and I think it was probably a combination of like not the right fit, but also not the right time in my life. Um, and then finally, when I was mm-hmm. like, okay, like I sort of understand what we're supposed to be doing here and I'm ready for it. Um, but I remember, you know, very, I was very aware of like, I don't know how to word this, but, but the complicated nuanced nature of that relationship, I guess. Um, I think maybe it, my first thought around it was for a very, very long time, I refused to have female therapists. I only wanted to have male therapists. And I realized that preferably I wanted them to be gay. And I was like, oh, okay. So clearly <laughs> like I have a trust thing around like women and where I feel most comfortable is with people who remind me of someone I trust, like my mm-hmm. father, for example. Um, which then sort of led me into, I think, when in being in the, the sort of astrological space um, and recognizing these sort of trends around like sexual attraction and spiritual guru, like shaman, self-made shaman, whatever, like that became very obvious to me that there were so many threads there. Um, and I, I remember going into therapy and I was like, why doesn't anybody like, why did, why aren't we talking about this? Like, why, (laughs) why is this so taboo to me? It's like so prevalent and so common. And perhaps the, this, like the taboo sort of like keeping it in the closet nature is like making it able to proliferate to the extent that it is. And I remember she sort of just giggled and she's like, well, maybe it's not like talked about in your circles, but like we all talk about it, like we (laughs) as in the therapist. Um, And I just wonder like, how do you, how do you approach that at all with clients in regard to like what the nature of that client counselor relationship is? Um, Yeah. Like how, how do you experience it? But also like, how do you, do you, do you bring that, and put it on the table in plain sight. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time, I think it was last year reflecting on Aphrodite consciousness, which is something that Jean Shinoda Bolin talks about in her book, Goddesses and Every Woman, and just like the psychology of women, which I actually think extends to, you know, however anybody wants to identify, but I, um, I, I don't think that one can engage in that one and one-to-one relationship without being profoundly changed themselves, if that makes sense, because Mm -hmm. you are bringing two souls together and it's just really important that I'm showing up as my most authentic self. Now I'm not bringing everything to the table because I don't want to create this imbalance where the client is feeling like some need to caretake me or, um, you know, have to process or counsel me on my information. But on the other hand, I am trying to show up presently. And, you know, what happens is, let me just think for a second, I'm getting a little off track. But, you know, when you, I think it was Carl Jung who said that, but this, but when you mix two personalities, it's like mixing two different chemicals. And, you know, as a result of that, each are profoundly changed or transformed in some way. And 
um, I never know exactly how a client's going to impact me, what I'm going to feel. Um, you know, people can have really profound um, shifts in consciousness with you or realizations with you. And I can feel that in my body with people. And sometimes I will acknowledge that to clients. Like, I can feel this. I can feel happy tears bubbling up or I can feel the depth of your emotion and then I'll give it back and say, are you experiencing that as well? And often that opens that portal for them to finally have the release that they want to have. And, you know, with that Aphrodite consciousness too, I think there's, there is a level of attraction, right? Like there does need to be this, beautiful rapport and connection that you have with your client to, you know, it's a fine line between um, healthy boundaries, but it's also, you know, having enough openness and receptivity that you can attune to the client and that they feel seen and they feel um, held by you. Um, And I think if you don't dip into that intimacy I'm not talking about sexual intimacy but intimacy of like I'm going to reveal something to you I've never spoken to anybody else because I know you're here to understand and you know it has come up a couple couple times where that that sexual tension has been under the surface but I think the greatest opportunity is naming it and getting to work through it if, if, if it's appropriate. I mean, that, that word appropriate too is another question, but I think avoiding it's not helpful. And then you can decide on the other side, do, you, do we feel this is a relationship we can continue in or, you know, perhaps we need to reconsider or reevaluate who you're going to work with? You know, would it be a better contradiction for you to work with a man or an older woman or consider something else altogether. Um, In my early days too, before I actually went to school to become a counselor, I did this form of counseling called reevaluation counseling. And it was pure counseling. It was, we were trading time. We were trained in the fundamentals of listening and not interrupting and the power, the power of not interrupting too, because sometimes like it's, it's easy to want to jump in and like say, Oh, I understand you. I get you. Uh, I've had that experience too, but sometimes you, you need to reserve that too, because you can really disrupt somebody's what I call quote discharge process of crying or talking through something or shaking or yelling. And we don't, we don't want to interrupt that process. We want to help people come to some sort of completion around things. But in that peer counseling, it was a great opportunity because then it was like, I was in the client role. They were in the counselor role and then we would switch. Um, and it just made it so much more accessible too. And of course there was boundaries. Um, I think that got, I think the thing that got tricky is I think when you do create that container of safety and you're not quote unquote friends with a person, there's another level of intimacy you can reach, mm. you know, and then that's a different negotiation if you decide to break that more clinical or counseling relationship. Because with a lot of my peer counselors, we did go on to make the decision, do we want to be friends as well? And can we hold that same level of intimacy as before? Mm. And I don't know how that's landing with you, but. Yeah, well, I think what's the word that people use in this space when like 
it's not projecting, but uh, transference, and transference, and counter transference. Yes, yeah, counter, yeah. Uh, you know that whole idea is so sort of complex, and I feel like potentially problematic. Um, I mean, the other thing too, like in my therapy, uh, you know, it became clear to me, and she was. Um, vocal and honest about this that like this might be the first relationship that you have where you recognize that you can be safe and feel safe and actually trust people and depend on people and it's it was clear that like I needed that because I didn't have it and so this relationship with her was going to sort of take on similar forms um on, on paper uh, of relationships I'd had in the past. Um, but like, it has to, it, it has to, it had to <laughs> um, retrain me in a way, right? Like this type of person is someone I, I wouldn't normally trust because I haven't been able to in the past, but now they're similar enough to that person to where I can relearn this um, and I can really come to terms with you know, how I was, how I was raised or how I grew up and, and how I don't need to live in that space anymore. Um, and like, that wasn't, that's, you know, I know that the transference thing is used maybe more in the space of like sexual attraction, but to me, it's like, if we're not acknowledging what's actually happening, you know, um, then I don't really know. It's like, it, it feels like to say these things are just transference feels like a denial of like truth in a way. It's mm -hmm. like to say what you're feeling isn't real. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I recognize the issue with acknowledging what's actually happening, but it, it's one part of, I guess, traditional psychotherapy that's always sort of bothered me um mm -hmm. and like I'm curious on your end you know the whole idea of boundaries and like I don't think there's an answer whether like they're good or bad but um I would assume you've had lots of different experiences where like where those boundaries need to be set based on the situation maybe doesn't feel the same all the time um, yeah. 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 It's very nuanced. It's not black or light. I mean, I think I have some baseline boundaries, but I'm also willing to tiptoe into areas that, you know, do seem a little bit more taboo. Like for example, you expressing with your therapist, things were coming up and that may have been more of a projection than transference, counter-transference, um, unpacking those are sort of complicated, but you know, when a, when a client reveals to me that I remind them of somebody or something's coming up, we have an opportunity to make a change. And similar to what your experience was, is instead of duplicating, right, something that was familiar or playing out the same patterns, you have an opportunity to realize that you do have that safety. You were just saying that, but yeah. that trust, um, because I think it's it's not uncommon to 
you know, move from our families of origin and move into things that are familiar, if that makes sense. There's kind of this repetitive compulsion to, you know, partner or find friends sometimes with um, something that we're used to. It's just familiar. It feels like home and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for us, um, but we know what it's about. And then when somebody really does initiate therapy, it's it's an opportunity to re-examine and for the client to test out, is this person going to do the same thing that I'm so accustomed to seeing in my, my relationships from my family of origin? Mm. And I just see it as such a gift when clients do let me know that something's going on, that they're uncomfortable with me or I said something that hurt their feelings. And instead of me responding in a way that maybe a parent did yelling at them or dismissing them to really check out that you can bring up challenging things. You can tell me what's going on with you and we can actually navigate this together. Do you feel like in this space now in terms of like, it sounds like obviously counseling and climbing were always sort of like linked up for you in a way. Do you feel like that's, I mean, coming full circle is maybe a bad way to explain it because I think things continue to cycle, but I'm mm-hmm. curious, like where you see that now, it seems to me like, you know, it's, it's both positive, maybe a negative, the like intimate connection you have to the community and those experiences and the clients that are coming to you in that way. And, um, I guess where the complications are in that, um, it sounds like you can probably, you're probably one of the people who can best serve that community because you're of your experience, but also being careful not to project your own past experiences in this space onto them. Um, When you sort of recognize that maybe those themes were going to be more present in your life, did you think about sort of like what that meant and how you were going <laughs> to deal with it. Yeah, well, initially um, experiencing my own grief, and I'm going to say very specific to Johnny, when that was taking place, I was able to take a few days off from work, but I didn't have um, the ability to take a ton of time off from work. And so what I discovered was that I was actually able to show up more present for my clients who were having their own grief experiences. We were just able to tap in at a deeper level because I knew exactly what that meant. I was experiencing it intimately. I knew what it felt like. And so I just was able to recognize it in my clients better. But it isn't until very recently that now I'm starting to serve the climbing community directly. Most of the people that I've experienced with any sort of loss and grief have been people removed from the climbing community. And it's really only been over the cat past couple of days and another loss in our climbing community that I'm asking the question of like, what do I need to continue doing this? Because I am very emotionally impacted for me when somebody dies in the climbing community, whether I know them or not, I get emotional, I get re-stimulated, I get re-triggered and I'm having my own memories. I mean, I feel like I've, I've done my work to the point where I'm not regressing, like I can acknowledge this is happening. And I think that's a big part of the work too, that now I'm 
um, interfacing with the climbing community more intimately is I have done the work. So um, I can sit with somebody in their unique experience of grief and not disassociate and not feel compelled that I have to relate in every single way with them on what happened. But it's also a huge relief for those clients because they know I get it because I've I've gone through this rite of passage as well. I have gone to the other world. I've left a part of myself that has forever changed. And I have come out the other side, a completely different person. And I, I can't go backwards now, but I am trying to sit with the nuance of like, how many clients can I, can I manage? And the climbing community is so intertwined um, that I think there's probably going to need to be some boundaries there because it's kind of like with family therapy. I can't see all the clients in the family. I usually have to have a whole team of people helping me out so I can stay clear about that one client, that, that one client and but I want to bring it on because I don't know this is new territory for me um but I just want to stay attuned to my own intuition and my own needs of you know where do I need a hand and I continue to see the therapist that I established with 10 years ago when Johnny died and a big part of it was initially the grief work but it's also been everything in between from couples work and deeper connection with my husband to you know how do I want to move my own life forward you know where am I confused or just being with another fellow therapist of like how do we keep this stuff off of us because that's the other thing is how do we stay buoyant because we're getting a lot of traumatic um, input all the time. And that vicarious trauma is very, very real. And I have experienced burnt out. You know, I've had to take a step back and, and, and say no, you know, to do my own work. And I think that's a constant process. It's constantly evolving and never stops. And I think that's where the j- danger lies. If you're not acknowledging your own shadow and not acknowledging where you also are getting triggered with the client, then you, you really can't be of that service. And I think that's where things get really messy. I mean, it can get really messy really quick. And, and, and that's where I'm inviting all of us to, to do the shadow work and, and making it okay. This is the other piece, you know, I, I think you were asking a question and some of the notes you sent to me, you know, there's still a lot of stigma around therapy, but there's also still a lot of stigma for therapists to, you know, make it okay that I'm having a hard time here. And I need a hand here. I'm getting super confused here. I'm getting triggered here. Um, I need a break. Or, you know, how can I metabolize this through me? And I think, yeah, that's that's the work. <laughs> yeah, and that that's not a failure. And quite the opposite. I think failure to acknowledge it is the failure. Um, yeah. How do you... How do you, I'm assuming, you know, being into, I'm not even in the community and I'm, you sent me something this morning on Instagram, someone else who had died. Like, how do you, I'm assuming there's anger. Um, And I'm curious how you deal with that both personally, but when you have clients, you know, it's like, do you ever feel the need or desire (laughs) to just be like, just stop, like, just stop (laughs) doing it, you know? Um, 
like how do you process that or or look at it yeah well I'm in the middle of it this morning I mean I I, that Instagram post I sent you, I saw, and I actually just was moved to tears. Yeah. I think I feel more of the sadness first um, because I know this person who's passed was super vibrant. And honestly, the climb he was on, I think he was probably taking the most, you know, calculated steps and something super unpredictable happened. However, that was kind of an extension of the conversation I was with ha- was having with Jacob this morning of, you know, there's so many objective hazards in nature and they've always been there. There's avalanches, there's rock breaking. And I think sometimes we take that for granted because we get away with it so often. Um, but lots of places we're, we're climbing in are these huge geographic formations that go beyond time that are changing. And that's what's so tragic. That's where I start to get pissed. I think is, you know, he was standing on the ledge and the ledge broke from out from under him. And there, there's no rhyme or reason to that. I mean, it probably was going to happen at some point. I've seen huge rock fall in the back country out of nowhere. It's terrifying. Um, But then the tragedy that the rock cut the rope, that's, that does not happen on a fairly regular basis. I mean, rock can cut rope, but oftentimes you clear the rock. I've had rock come off on me, but I think it, it goes deeper into, wow, this continues to happen. And I think I was leaving you a voicemail recently where the climbing community has grown so much. I mean, I started 20 years ago and it was a lot smaller and 20 years prior to that, it was a lot smaller, but exponentially this is happening quarterly and we've already had two, you know, very prolific climbers in this first part of the year. Well, actually, I guess that happened in November. I don't need to refer to specifics of who they were, but it's, it's happening more and more frequently. And it tends to be men. I do have a couple of female peers who have lost their lives in the mountains. It's, it's a lot more rare. I, I don't know if women's threshold, here we go back into that risk, is you know a little different. Like I said, I very much need to be in control. And I know that the women I climb with, there's a little bit more hypervigilance maybe around that. But I also don't want to make a broad statement because I do think this young man was probably being as careful as possible. And I'm not familiar with the specifics of the climb he was on. I don't know how dangerous or like what the reputation of it is. Um, But there are so many women in this community who are widows and are pioneering forward. And I was so struck by that recent article too um, in the New Yorker, the altitude sickness one. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but Jennifer Lowe Anker, who lost her first husband, Alex Lowe, on Shishapangma. I want to say that was the early 2000s, because I was intimately involved in that. I was experiencing that firsthand as well, um, was equating it to, you know, men in war zones or people who go off to war. It's, this is not an uncommon thing. This is like a bigger archetypal story that's playing out. And that very much interests me as well. But then I tend to be the one, whether it's now through my counseling practice and the climbing grief fund, serving those people directly and, you know, people that I don't, didn't necessarily know, but I have so many deep 
girl or you know I have friendships with women in this community and I, I, I can't even list on 10 fingers how many of them have lost their partner and how we're all like I guess in this club in this weird way but I also felt a lot of shame around it because I wasn't Johnny's partner when he died he was my first love and that just was such a formative relationship yeah. And then when he finally, I say finally, that sounds so weird to say that. And so I, I guess I kind of knew I, I wasn't in denial that it could happen. And that's another layer of my anger. Like I kind of started to separate from him because I did so love him still. That wasn't fully reconciled, even though we had decided not to be together. Um because every time he went on a big expedition, I wondered if I was going to be facing his, his, I don't even know what the word I want. Yeah. That he was going to fi- finally die. Like I was definitely not in denial of that happening. And he had had so many close calls prior to that. And I think that is interesting to me as well is I don't know if it's naivety or numbness or complacency, but I think when you are in a risky environment, um, it gets normalized. You get used to it. You don't maybe necessarily recognize the red flags as easily. But um, when he did die, I actually really truly think they were trying to get out of there. Like, I think he knew this was a bad environment. And I know I sent a song along to you about a poem. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that border country, but I think he had tacit knowledge that something was about to happen. And we don't know exactly what happened. Um, We believe they were just going up to retrieve their gear, um, which was probably not that much money, which again, Jacob and I were reflecting like, why? It's only a couple hundred dollars, you know, just abandon it, come home. But we really don't know what happened. Yeah. The why question is, I've been talking, I have a friend who lost his uh, daughter in a car accident, young daughter. Um, And there's a lot of strange sort of like confusing circumstances around it. And another friend who was just hurt in a really sort of also tragic, freak, bizarre accident. Um, I think that also ties into the anger because like we so want to consciously rationalize and understand because we think that will make it easier. and to mm-hmm. sort of like live in that space of not knowing and just accepting. I mean, it is an interesting question about control uh, and something I think about quite a bit that I I try to move away from that as much as possible because I think it's been very limiting and anxiety producing and just like straight up unrealistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we don't have control. Um, but it's fascinating in situations where that's stripped from us how intensely we try to hold hold back on. Yeah. Yeah. And it brings me back to the sideline. Like people who engage in the climbing community are some of the most vibrant, 
creative, inspirational people that I know. They're dynamic people. They are not one-sided people. And I think from the outside, you know, that stigma comes up of like, what did you expect? Just stop. Like, what are you doing? But it's so life-giving that I don't think you can separate the two. And this is the other thing that I've really been contemplating and I think is really important in the work I'm doing and around trauma release. I'm doing this whole new form of practice is, you know, how do we merge dualities and polarities? Everything's whole, you know, it's like the bee can't exist without the flower. Life can't exist without the death. And um, I think that's very much what it is for climbers. You know, you're riding that fine line between life and death and you can't control it. You can, you know, take the most calculated risk as possible. And a lot of these men do know, I mean, there are women putting themselves out there in more extreme environments, um, but it's almost like you can't let it cross your mind. Yeah. And, and the why too, I mean, I know Jonathan, he, we went budget Jonathan too. His mom came up to me after he passed out, passed away. And he, she was like, why did they go back up there? Kestrel? Like, for some gear, why? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I just think they couldn't get out of there quick enough. And I think there's another component going on. And I know Hannah brought this up in the conversation just around the grief with the planet, but I think the the global warming that's going on is impacting these mm. mountain environments directly. Like, things are not staying frozen the way they used to. Um, and big avalanches happen in these mountain ranges. But I think that it, it is more dangerous than maybe it used to be. I don't know 100% for sure, but I do wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, I think that's such a good metaphor in general. Like things are not, things are melting. Like things are melting across the board. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm curious, you mentioned this sort of like thinking about this archetypally and like sort of similar to, to men who go to war um, and also connecting that to the thought around the whole. Um, I'm curious where you see this sort of climbing grief fund. Like I'm, on, I'm not in this at all. So I'm only looking at, at it from the outside, but it seems to me like that conversation is happening a lot more um, Mm -hmm. that there is, if we're going to talk about, you know, the duality of life and death that like the death component is sort of like coming in, not that it wasn't there before, but it's like coming into daylight consciousness in a way Mm -hmm. um, that feels different. And um, yeah, like where, where do you see this? If you do where you sort of see this going um how do you feel that this conversation is sort of like bringing wholeness to this community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I liked how you used day consciousness because I also felt like it was bringing like the shadow side of climbing to the forefront um well, it's getting people talking. I don't know exactly how this is going to evolve, but it is way more visible. And, um, you know, I was even listening into some snippets from Instagram yesterday. There was the No Man's Film Festival here. And one of the questions that came up was around um, female first ascents, like 
what's internally like, like what is motivating that and is it coming from an internal process or an external process of needing to be validated. And I think that might be a thread or the piece of the conversation coming through with the climbing grief fund is what, what is really motivating us to go into the mountains, like unpacking that on a new level and hopefully inviting companies to the dialogue as well. Um, but I guess I'm watching it. Like I'm, I feel like it's unfolding before us and I am just so grateful that it's more visible now because I literally, this is the most visible I've been around my own grief in regard to Johnny. It's always just been with my closest friends. Um, but I felt so much tremendous shame and I didn't have a space to talk about it. And now I feel like we're at this pivotal moment where the responsible and mature conversations are happening around it. But what the outcome is going to be, I don't think we can see that because people have been taking risks for all time. I think it's like inherently wired into our nervous system, that fight, flight, or freeze. It's a part of who we are. And I think we're always pushing that limit, limit of what is humanly possible. And I just think through the physical body, that's one way we've been able to discover it. But then there's also just like a super spiritual component to being in the mountains. I just think you can tap into a oneness that you don't necessarily get in the day-to-day -day one day. And I know that's been a big part of it for me. It's just, I've, I feel like I'm connecting with spirit when I'm out there. And it doesn't for me have to be through climbing but just being in nature. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm glad it's happening, but I did, but I think there's resistance points happening as well. Yeah. And we live, I mean, whether we're talking about like the grand melting, my friend a couple of days ago said something about a grand leveling, um, which I thought, I thought was such a brilliant way to sort of like explain what's going on in so many different ways um but I do think like what's partially happening is that we've really in we've lived very I think insular emotionally insular but also like planetarily insular mm -hmm. <laughs> lives um and you know whether or not you know when we're talking about cycles like returning to the same place and seeing it in a different way like clearly there's always been loss and tragedy clearly there's always been grief but i feel like we've we've been out in an orbit where we've not we've kept ourselves away from it or at least um we've kept ourselves in denial of it for a really long time because i think you know it's hard and we haven't had the tools. And I think um, now it seems like we have the tools or we're at least willing to like try them. Mm -hmm. um, but across the board, it's hard to deny that. I think people are just like, I just feel like the complexity is so much more apparent. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, that's, I think, why I was so grateful to meet all of you in, the, in that time of my life, because I started to feel like, is anyone else seeing and feeling this? Like, <laughs> what is going on? Like, I, I didn't recognize, I mean, and I was, you know, at the time in my late 20s, so I just lived this life of, like, thinking 
you know, I just, I didn't know there was that level of like pain or intensity or grief. I just had no familiarity with it and I wasn't taught about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm grateful to see these sort of shifts happening and like to hold space through this podcast or these conversations are just for friends. Like I feel so grateful that I've had that experience. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very, very intense. And I think the communal piece obviously is mm-hmm. huge. Um, I'm grateful that like that community, the climbing community, it feels like it's such a sort of like tight knit for lack of a better word, like incestuous community. Um, <laughs> it but, is. It's somewhat yeah. incestuous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but like, we just cannot do this on our on our own. Um, no, and it's it's. I think it's going to. Ex- I think it is an interesting example to see how it's playing out in the climbing community. But I think that it has the possibility to extend and create growth in all areas of life and giving permission to something that has been rather taboo. And I mean, it, it, for me, just being vulnerable to do the interview also became very, very liberating. I feel liberated in a way that I've never felt before. And I'm excited to see what comes next because I've allowed my voice to enter the collective and I've been really hesitant to do that for over a decade. And I've, you know, I've thought about writing a memoir about it. And then I had a conversation with a young man, Chris Common, who wrote this beautiful climbing publication called as above so below, which I thought was ironic because I don't think he realized like exactly articulately what he was doing, but he was like, you know, maybe the medium in which you will express this will be your voice it won't be like written and it's just been really powerful for me and I my hope is that this resonates with others in so some ways and finally gives people permission to come in completion with whatever grief they've had to continue living the fullest life possible because I feel like that's what it's done for me as painful as it's been it's really like infused my life with love and joy on a level that I never knew was possible. I mean, nobody wishes these things upon anybody. However, it's caused the greatest growth in my life and the most empathy and living this human experience. And I'm grateful for that. And yeah, I'm grateful for the community that's come along with it beyond the climbing community. Cause I think that's been a part of it for me is to find connection elsewhere as well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same. I feel the, the level of space that was opened up and sort of like expressing or metabolizing the grief and the pain. Um, like I'd never, I true I didn't I mean I say this I've probably been repetitive in saying this but like I didn't even understand really what gratitude was I thought it sounded sort of like callous and like kind of spiritual bypassy mm-hmm. um and interestingly the first time it made sense to me was when I was in like the deepest most intense grief um and recognizing that like sometimes these things sort of only exist in duality mm-hmm. um yeah. 
all right, this could just go on and yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> no, we can stop. No, I just, yeah, it's, I hope, yeah, I hope this, you know, translates in some way. And I'm just, I'm grateful with whatever happens with this, that just that we're able to connect in this way. And I love that my community and some of these women that are so dear to me are like, yeah, that you're discovering something there too. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much for being willing to do it. So before we wrap up, um, if you could tell everyone where they can find you and learn more about the work that you do um, and maybe talk about some things that are upcoming in your life. Oh yeah. Uh, I didn't even think about this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the last question is um, if you could recommend one book to everyone, what might that book be? Oh, on the spot. Well, you can find me at kestrelneathawk.com. That's K-E-S-T-R-E-L-N-E-A-T-H-A-W-K. And I think the biggest thing coming up for me is the the world premiere, I think, of the Climbing Grief Fund, which I believe is April 23rd. And I think they will be hosting the film, which I'm a part of, and also having a panel of participants answering questions for the audience and yeah continuing to evolve as a therapist oh the other thing coming up is I'm releasing my own podcast with (laughs) two of our astro buddies at the end of the month yeah Eliza and Jasmine and I don't know exactly what we're going to call it but we're going to be delving into the archetypal landscape and counseling in a deeper way um there'll definitely be astrology but I think we're hoping to reach a larger audience so that's exciting and then I forgot I'm actually doing fresh voices through the astrology university on March 29th with Jasmine yeah we'll be talking about Lilith and counseling Oh, no, I can't believe that. <laughs> you prepare for that. And then books, you know, it's funny first thought and just to kind of keep it relevant to the climbing community. So another prolific climbing climber, Corey Richards, um, gave me a book called Buddha's Warriors. Um, and I believe Dunham is the last name, but it takes place in Tibet before the Chinese Liberation Army came in. And I think the reason I'm bringing up is it because it brings in the mountain environment and it brings in just the intense resilience of a people through one of the most horrific experiences one could go through. So, and it really touched me. It's, I, I highly recommend it. I don't think it's something mainstream. So. Yeah. Sounds yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate this. Um, this is such a selfish, this podcast is like so selfish. I'm just like, I want to have meaningful conversations with people. And I feel so grateful after it happens. It's like, oh, and someone else gets to listen to it. Okay. But really, <laughs> really this is just fun. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. thanks for being with me today. I think that's the best part. Ditto. Hello, friends. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I am going to play you out with a song that needs no introduction. My closest friend, Erin, who I do Horror Rapport, uh, the podcast, with, um, she always says that this is her apocalypse song, that if she goes out, this is the song that she wants to be listening to. And it's fucking perfect, and her taste in music is very on point. So we're going to sort of shift gears and move out of the 
sort of intense, tearful, painful vibe and get into something a bit more upbeat, but which if you listen to or read the lyrics can see that, again, it sort of contains its polar opposite as well. I love songs that are sort of sad or painful or um, concerning and yet have a very upbeat tone. I think it's a very perfect example of paradox, um, which I love. So please enjoy. Again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please just hit subscribe in the iTunes store. Leave some stars and a review. We're going to get through this, you guys. And I'll talk to you next week. Yeah.